Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference, attendees say, is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live Tuesdays through Thursday. You get the same amount of mouthwash, don't worry. We're just spreading it over the middle of the week. Um, It's a reflection of the times and changing world of work, which is our theme for this season, the real future of work. Uh, This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking our assumptions. We're checking in on ourselves. And we're also checking the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists to TikTok superstars. If you want, check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com. That's all one word, mouthwashshow.com. I'm also cra- uh, proud to say that we are sponsored again this season, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to the office to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and to make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool indeed. Um, Ecology are also back and they're planting a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest. We're over 15,000 trees strong at the moment, so we're not doing badly. Uh, and if you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and start planting your forest. Um, they're one of those whizzy startups, um, so they don't spell it this is the way you think. It's E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. That's ecology.com. And uh, yeah, you can uh, have your very own forest. It's very cool. Or add to other people's, should you feel like it. Um, for those in this live space, now is a great time to share the space. Look on your screens, the little blue round button, and it's got a little plus in the middle. And if you click that, you'll actually send a tweet out to the world once you send a bit of extra detail in there as well. Or not, up to you. Um, <laughs> but everyone that you get in, it's completely up to you. And uh, But they do get a free tree planted in their honour. So good things to have in the world. Those trees are here. So yeah, so please do that. Um, if you want to ask a question, just DM me or use the Mouthwash Show hashtag and we'll pick it up from there. So, yeah. OK, that's enough plugging and uh, updates and sponsored messages. Joining me today from Hong Kong, no less, in China is Diana Wu David, top strategist, innovator 
entrepreneur and she's also the founder of Serana Capital and Serana Labs. Diana helps transform how executives work and prepares companies to be more entrepreneurial, resilient, uh, successful in the face of constant change. She's all about education, HR, and she supports businesses to do their best work. Her clients range from tiny companies like the Financial Times to Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group, the World Bank, Expedia, Asia Development Bank and Credit Suisse, just to name a few. She's also worked with Henry Kissinger. Um, she's a prolific writer and writes for um, people like Harvard Business Review, Wired, <coughs> Inc., Fast Company. And uh, she's also recently written the much acclaimed Future Proof, Reinventing Work in the Age of Acceleration. I knew I had to have it on the season. So that book explores work, the leadership uh, needed for tomorrow's businesses and a lot more besides. Lots on focus, for example. Uh, welcome to Mouthwash, Diana. What did I miss out of your bio? What did you miss out of my bio, Paul? Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I guess... Um, the perspective I bring, in addition to being Hong Kong in Hong Kong, is is really global. I grew up on the border of Mexico in Arizona, and so so much of my career really is global. So I'd love to to bring that perspective today. Excellent, excellent. Um, I always ask, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up today? Mm, I woke up so giddy because I've been getting up really early at five or six to do meetings around the world, speaking of global. And today I woke up and had nothing until about nine. And so I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to take a walk? Am I going to do my, you know, trip app on the Oculus? Am I going <laughs> to have an extra long coffee? So that, that's sort of the way I woke up this morning. It was great. Are you a, are you a morning VR user like I am? It's very rare to find that, just so you're, when the, according to the data that I've seen anyway. I, you know, if I can, I, I, I hadn't thought about what kind of VR um, user I was, because uh, Trip, particularly, I love doing that. I love doing their meditation. So I do that yeah. in the morning. What do you do in the morning on VR? So I, do, I do two things. I, I'm also a Trip user. I do like that. And yep. if people haven't, mm. they're not aware, it's a, it's a sort of meditation app and they're very cool, but it's got two Ps at the end, T-R-I-P-P. Um, and uh, the other one is the obligatory rec room where I play uh, paintball and, uh, yeah, people shall we say, get shot with paintball a lot. <laughs> so I, I think it might be more unusual that you're a paintball player in the morning. That seems like a little, uh, I need to ease into the morning because I don't know that I can go paintball in the morning, but VR is fine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bizarre. Sometimes you sort of like need to ease yourself in the day and other times I'm like, ramp, keep up the ramping up and that sort of thing. So yeah, definitely, definitely. But the data is very much the opposite. A lot of people do not VR in the morning. They VR late at night and that sort of thing. So there you go. So it's a de-stressor. Yeah. Right. We are talking today about, uh, or this season, about the future of work. What's your current situation when it comes to work? Are you back at an office? Have you always been remote or co-working never done? Or um, I go where my clients are usually. And I used to be in a co-working space. And then during COVID, I gave that up. And I'm somewhat desperately trying to go back to co-working. But, um, but my routine has changed so much. So I have three kids and you know, I'm always thinking, oh, I got to go to the co-working space. And then I'll think, oh, but I have to go to this client. And then... I have to bring so and so because now they're completely used to being, you know, carted around at any mm. the drop of a hat. So, uh, I guess I'm a struggling to get back into the office, like many people. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have options. That's what I always say. Um, yeah. When you think back, uh, or, or during the three, last three years, what's been your biggest learning, um, professionally or personally? You know, that you're sort of taking forward. Oh, wow. That's a good question. I think that the biggest learning is uh, that 
I have been a big booster of globalization and, you know, and my whole life, my portfolio career has been like, get on a plane, go to London, give a talk, go somewhere else. Uh, and I think that the biggest surprise, maybe not lesson, is this, um, is the pandemic and the quarantine and the political situation has really locked things down. So um, on one hand, great. So I can do everything from my desk. But on the other hand, uh, and I think we need to be prepared for that. But on the other hand, uh, that was also one of my greatest joys is to, you know, get on the plane and, and go to LA and meet a mm -hmm. lot of interesting people. So um, I have to be more prepared for disruption in terms of not, not being mobile. Yeah, it's it's a funny one, isn't it? it when it comes to mobile, when I, I like you do the speaking gig every so often, write written a book and that sort of stuff, and there is a glamour that's associated with that lifestyle of like, oh yeah, I'm just going to work from a hotel room, or I'm just going to work from the downstairs poolside and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I miss, and I've realised recently, I've missed that. You know, it's quite nice to sort of see a different place but still be working. You know, it's not not everyone can do that and that sort of thing. And I'm very you know, lucky and privileged yeah. to sort of have that, but I have missed it. And that's something I, I'm sort of looking to sort of get back because as fun as virtual is and you still get to see people and, you know, have fun with them and that sort of stuff. It's not the same as when you're sort of like chatting to people on stage or in a room where you can sort of see what they're scribbling down and that sort of stuff. It's, we just miss a lot, don't we? So interesting stuff. Yeah. And just talk oh, sorry, go Yeah. I was going to say just walking down the street, right? You develop products and you can be on a Zoom with people from all over the world. But going to Korea to, you know, see a client and walking down the street, there's just so much visual stimulation. And mm -hmm. it, that's what I really miss is just that kind of immersive um, travel for yeah. work. Yeah. Well, I think we'll get back there. You know, I think it'll be different. Yeah. I think we'll get back there. Um, mm. Okay, before we talk about the book, let's talk about leadership in general. Um, a few stats to sort of thrill us all. Before the pandemic, 75% of Americans saw their boss as the most stressful aspect of their job. The data is still out on whether that number has risen. I suspect it may have. 80% um, of uh, your business believe that they can run it better than your senior team currently does, mm -hmm. which is terrifying. Um the tourism people, uh, the tourism of the world and sort of uh, moving jobs, people uh, say they still don't leave their jobs, they leave bosses. And that seems to be playing out with a great resignation or acceleration, depending on how you do it. Um, leadership, it's, it's sort of been tested for the last three years, I'd say, you know, really to its core. Some really good leaderships emerged, I would argue not nearly enough, um, but equally the opposite. Some truly deplorable practices have, you know, gone down. We've seen Zoom calls been leaked and that sort of stuff. Um, mm. Much of that is still happening or about to happen you know a lot of people have sort of kept bricks on but then they weren't expecting inflation and that sort of stuff do you think that's all fair to say or do you think i need to give more slack to leaders no i don't think you need to give more slack to leaders i mean you know it, there's a whole bunch of leaders right there's there's a bunch that um know that maybe they're not doing so well and are trying and i think we can give slack to those leaders and you know the pandemic really tested people um, but I, I also think there are a, lot, a number of leaders who uh, they don't know what they don't know. And frankly, I don't know that they care that much where they're thinking that they're, they're terribly, you know, not very self-aware and they don't realize um, that things have shifted. Right. Mm. And, and they haven't adapted. And I, I, 
I think that it's not healthy to, to give everybody like that a pass. I think it's healthy to say, hey, it's not working, right? I mean, I, I come in and work with leaders who generally, I would say, are, you know, they mean well, but I've talked to their staff and some of them have said, you know what, this guy, like he wasn't really um, the leader he needed to be until the pandemic. And now he, you know, he's much more flexible. He's much more human um, and he cares about us as people. And I think that that's the best case scenario where you don't give people a pass. You go, hey, this isn't working and you got to change. And then maybe it's hard for them, but they change. Yeah. And I want to come on to talk about, you know, their remuneration later, because I feel like that's that's an important part. Um, Mm. It it is a tough role. And I think, like you've mentioned, especially now, and some people have risen to that challenge. Other people have almost avoided the challenge, it seems to feel like. Um, There are real paradoxes, though, when I sort of um, think about a leader's role. Ultimately, there's keeping the ship right upright. There's also growing, but avoiding more icebergs than normal. Um, but you've also got the burden of saving the planet and keeping stakeholders happy so that they don't become activist stakeholders and oik you out. Um, they have to lead in a world that's sort of never anything like they've experienced. How has your sort of um, working with CEOs changed during the pandemic? Has have, have you been focusing on other things or is it the usual stuff, but they just need to talk about it in a different way? So... I've worked with CEOs and boards. I think that boards really stepped up during this time to give that extra padding around the CEO because it has been an extraordinary time. And uh, the CEO can't really do it alone. I think that 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 became apparent. Um, It is a difficult time and you have to pick and choose your battles. And I don't know that that's so different. Um, there's, There's more voices. There's more... Um, noise than signal, but but really setting a priority, deciding what you will focus on, what you won't, um, is a huge aspect to being the leader. And so, uh, you know, maybe there is more noise, but I don't think that the role has massively changed uh, during the pandemic, except, you know, the priority shifted, in my yeah. opinion. Mm. Um, I was reading some research from PwC and they've done what PwC normally do and boil big complex things down into whizzy shortened words. Um, Their (laughs) advice is uh, that leaders should be about to flip between six areas. Yeah. Uh, Oh, are you still here? Sorry, I just got a call. Apologies for that. Um, uh, (laughs) It's okay. We'll we'll start that question again. PwC have done what PwC normally do and they've boiled... um, big complex things into whizzy shortened words. Their advice is essentially that leaders should be about to flip between six core areas, right? So you've got, and here's the paradoxes again, globally minded localist, strategic executor, highly <laughs> dangerous politician, tech savvy humanist, humble hero and traditional innovator. Whoever came up with that needs a raise, obviously. But what, what whatever you think about that, and I'd like to know, are we asking leaders to have multiple personalities and then for they're sort of like <laughs> turning on the charm when they need to, when we need them to be more real than ever? Um, that is such a funny list. It's like, it's six, but it's actually 12 and they contradict each other. And by the way, there were a hundred. So we really had to boil it down. (laughs) Um, I I still think that it really is about choosing what you have to be. I don't think that you can flip between those, those six that really are 12, um, all the time. I think that there is that balance, but for example, when you're you know, leading your people, you have to decide. Financial Times is a great example. So, you know, how important is global? 
Well, if you look at from a strategic perspective, um, it's really important because the UK is a small market and you know, there's a competitive advantage to being the, the international press um, versus, say, Wall Street Journal. So those are the kind of things that, that leaders need to grapple with. Do we want to be a localist? I don't know. You know. I guess we have to think about that balance. Um, but I, think that, I do think that lists like that can leave a, a CEO spinning and that the best people have um, really focused on their people, the, the human side, what's going on with the people underneath me. Um, some of the, the best uh, leadership I've seen has been grappling with some of those issues, but mm. pulling people in to say, hey, let's not waste a good crisis. Let me have all of my direct reports and maybe even skip levels, you know, reports to come and talk about how I am trying to make these decisions so that I can use this crisis to teach everybody in this company so that the next time we have a crisis, you'll be ready. You'll have known what, you know, what I did and we can actually have a discussion about it as well. And so it's not so much the outward facing, you know, should we be global? Should we be local? Should we harness tech? Of course you could. The answer to all those is yes, (laughs) but, um, but how do we decide? What do we do first and how can the people around us come together to make that happen? Mm. I, I read that list and I sort of thought like, good God, like, I don't think one person could know all of that, let alone a- activate it. The CEOs are obviously put in a, a lofty position of sort of steering the ship. But the argument is they're not the only ones on that ship. They could ask anyone to like what to do. Do you think m- many leaders do that? What I've heard from leaders when I've spoken with them or interviewed them when I was writing for Forbes and that sort of stuff is that they feel often quite isolated. And it's hard for people then to sort of like put the, you know, the hand down to say like, hey, if I bring you up for five minutes, I want to ask you some really important questions and probably make you feel uncomfortable, but they'll really help the company. I'm not sure a lot of leaders are doing that. Would you say that's fair or not fair? Um, I think that it is fair for for quite a lot but technology and a lot of the drivers of um the futures the demographics and technology and globalization they can't be on top of everything and tech in particular allows people um leaders in particular to say you know what i don't understand the metaverse somebody mm-hmm. in my company who understands this better some breakfast vr type you know, come over to me <laughs> and explain to me why this is important, why we should care about it. You know, the whole idea of reverse mentoring. I think that that has broken the hierarchy and, and technology itself has broken the hierarchy a bit with, you know, where it, when you can text people in your company or Slack or whatever it is, it really changes the way that you speak to people. Mm, I agree. I think it's interesting as well that we always assume that the CEO has to ask down. For me, when I've been into businesses, I've always wanted that CEO to just listen up, if that makes sense. Um, Emily Logan from Noble Collective um, was on a previous Mm -hmm. episode and she brought up a really superb point and a word that I had not thought of in the whole season. It hadn't been mentioned. I checked the transcripts and the word was dignity. Um, And it really got me thinking leaders need to be working to give people dignity or, or at least maintain it. That's something that I think we all want and the ability to provide ourselves without feeling robbed or devalues. But actually, when people sort of list and sort of all the data that comes out from future work studies, it often comes down to I feel either disrespected or my time is being abused or I feel that I'm having things taken away from me. And that one of them is dignity. Um, what part do you think leaders can play or should be playing to make sure that people 
keep their dignity and how much I assume I assume it sort of comes into it is psychological safety uh you know a part of that I I heard that podcast and the minute she said it I was really struck by it I think similar to you I was like dignity oh I better sit up in my chair a little straighter um it was it was a great word and how leaders are playing a part is I think going beyond um coordination to more collaboration. You know, there's mm. this idea um, of the hierarchy and I just have to, you know, direct people to go everywhere. And I see this with board directors all the time because they spend their lives, you know, decades learning how to direct and then they get into a peer environment and they're like, hmm, what do I do now? How can I be more influential and strategic? Um, so in terms of giving that kind of dignity to, to people in the pandemic, a lot of leaders stopped and did just that. They said, okay, you haven't, you know, I didn't know you had a, a mom in, in a different country that you needed to be close to. Uh, so many people, at least for leaders who were at the very top of organizations, really didn't know what was going on with, with the people down below. Mm. Um, and they got to know because they had to. And they had to know what, people's actual situations were and of course with video conferencing they you know they could see what was going on it was a visual reminder um and so i think that there was a shift towards people saying okay the dignity the, the whole human i want to give you um the dignity of of being you as opposed to being the uh assistant vice president of advertising in charge of x region mm. um you started to go beyond just the job title to uh, the person that shows up every day. Yeah, I think it's important as well to see where they're going next. I've seen throughout the pandemic, and I think everyone has over the world, that there's a lot of leaders flip-flopping. Um, they're trying to please everyone, they end up pleasing no one. You know, giving an example of um, whether when they when they go back to the office, not whether, um, hybrid working or maybe taking money away from people because they moved from cities during the pandemic. Um, it, it's, it's a lot for a lot of people that, you know, some in, instantly impacts their money. Other people um, impacts, you know, their future plans and that sort of stuff. A lot of the pandemic um, has shown a sort of cold, ruthless money side to leaders. And that's, again, part of the job. They have to, you know, in some respects, look after the bottom line more than others. How do they build back their profiles, whether it's internally or externally? What advice would you have for them? And leaders who are trying to build back their profiles? Yeah, I'm not saying everyone's destroyed their, you know, goodwill with people internally and externally, but some obviously have been dinged for making, you know, horrible decisions. Well, I think that those who have um, admitted to to their mistakes and and kind of gone on that journey, like in the in the beginning, that idea that you know some people have said, "Wow, I used to be like this." I, for example, one of the leaders that I've worked with. I used to insist everybody come in at 9 a.m. and you had to dress a certain way and you had to act mm -hmm. a certain way. And, um, you know, halfway through, he said, you know what, I now you guys have all been at home. I've let you be, you know, go home for three months out of the year if you need to, to be with your family. Um, and now I think that some of the things I thought were so important, maybe they're not so important. What do you guys think? And those kind of conversations within are really um, transformative. And in terms of 
of without, then, you know, I think being quite authentic. The thing that I see people struggling with is you got a bit of a break as a CEO from, from the, you know, being the global localist and the tech mm. humanist because you needed to, to focus on your people. And now the people that I'm working with who um, have done that are saying, okay, I, I've been doing so much handholding. It's been gratifying. It stretched me maybe as a leader in a way that I never thought. But um, I'm ready to focus on strategy now. How do I balance that? Because now I, I have to, you know, pull everything out. And there's so much that's out there about, like, don't waste this crisis. And we're going to, I'm guilty of putting stuff out there, too, about let's build back better. We're going to, like, transform work. It's going to be totally different. And mm. and now's the time. And there's a short window. And leaders are like, okay. You know, I just spent like a year and a half really digging in personally to make sure everybody was okay. And now I have to pull out in a way that's going to transform the business outcomes and and also have to transform the company. So there's, a, there's a, you know, other plates to spin. And I see a lot of struggle mm-hmm. uh, with that. I think a lot of that is to do with technology, right? When I think of companies, obviously it was never possible for a lot of global companies to have an all hands without using virtual technology. But the majority of it was um, most people didn't sort of have that issue. You know, that's that's limited to a few, you know, mm. few thousand companies. Um, so you could get everybody in one sort of space. That obviously hasn't happened for three years and that's thing. And that takes a toll on culture, uh, people's willingness to work with each other and that. When we think about sort of technology and leadership, how um, or what advice would you have for people to, to either not necessarily just bring back the humanness to it, but just use those tools in a better way? I've heard what well, I've seen as well, because I get leaked, you know, people laying people off and they're rolling their eyes and that sort of stuff. Or, you know, people slack messages where you just like go, this was from our leader, question mark, you know, and that sort of thing. And how do people sort of add back? Uh, the idea around, um, you know, that collective vision, that mission statement and that. Any any advice for leaders when they're doing that via virtual methods? I see so many uh, struggling with the, the talent recruitment, retaining, et cetera, that they, they need to, uh, you had sort of two, one is the technology, one is the vision and the purpose. So I see people now really having to define why you should work here. And part of that is um, the technology. It's fascinating in terms of Web3. And I've worked with um, some Web3 companies in the last six months. They're saying, okay, you can make more money like staking your your tokens um, than you mm-hmm. can going to do a job. Or if you're in the Philippines, you can play Axie Infinity and make more money than you can be in business process outsourcing, for instance. Um, and all of a sudden, people are making choices that have less to do with just the money, which was an easy lever to pull, and and mm. also not even, you know, sometimes the benefits. And so they really are starting to say, okay, how can we bring people in with our purpose and our vision? How can we understand theirs? And how can we connect them? Because I talked to a client today, and they were like, we are, we don't care where people are anymore. That's the biggest change in this pandemic. Um, so technology is our friend. And now all of our leaders have to figure out how to create shared experiences that make people feel a part of this because we can't afford to hire 
you know, we're not, we're not going to go to London to hire coders. We're mm. going to go to wherever the best city is for the specific thing that we would like. So if we want to go AI, we're going to start looking in Toronto. They're even looking years out, like growth of a specific, um, you know, job skill in different cities. And we're going to mm. go there and it'll be, you know, all over the world. And then we have to bring them back via technology to create those shared experiences, be it in the metaverse, be it, you know, I, I think that that's a human skill is to bring people together via, you know, Twitter spaces or via mm. a conference or whatever. And that managers haven't necessarily had to do that so much, um, no. but it's a huge skill. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think getting people to virtual events and everything like that is is a challenge in and of itself. It's almost like you have to create, you know, 200% value in order for them to spend their time. And that's rightly so. You, you talk about that in the book, you know, focusing and protecting your time. We're, we're going to talk about, about that a little bit later. But let's let's flip on to the book. Um, it is a great read. Well done. Um, packed with data and examples and quotes um, to really understand the nuances of the future and leadership. Um, it's at the very least taught me the phrase only the paranoid survive, which was a former book by the Intel CEO. And I love that. I don't know why it just really <laughs> rung true with me. Um, tell me about soft skills though. Um, you say they're the new career makers. What do you mean by that? The tech skills are, are really, um, have such a short shelf life that in an era where for this book, you know, that the idea where company lifespans were going shortening and longer lifespans in terms of our own lives. Um, really, the one thing that you can invest in that pays dividends are soft skills. So when people are going in to do a tour of duty, say, in a company, and there's um, Corn Ferry has done great research on career nomads and how it's really gratifying for the person uh, who's doing it, but not great for companies. Um, <clears throat> You have to start investing in between your tours of duty in things that will compound and things that will help you across, you know, a company that you started out with. I started out working for Kissinger um, and we had a fax machine that like had to have a little dot on it. You know, I, I um, <laughs> did, I did, I disrupted that office to a certain extent um, and then went to audiobooks and then went to, um, you know, different the second life a little bit. Um, so it's always been changing. And the only thing that I have that I can get that can carry through are really the soft skills, the communication skills, the ability to collaborate with other people, um, influence, um, you know, those are the human skills to me, like, other things can be automated. And, and, more and more and more, the things that are, are the career makers, which I tell all my MBAs, um, you know, all the things they learn in business school that are technical will get them a great job. And all the things that they learn in my class, which is interpersonal dynamics, maybe a little mm -hmm. self-serving, are going to make their career. Like if they really want to go far, they're going to have to know how to lead people, how to communicate, how to have difficult conversations. It's interesting you raise that point, because when you look at a lot of the leaders that are often like hoisted up onto a pedestal, you know, post homeless or however you want to do it, um, a lot of them have defects in some very serious elements of their personality or work style and that sort of thing. I'm obviously thinking of Steve Jobs amongst others, but you could look at people now and it's almost like, oh, if you have a, not a ruthlessness, <clears throat> but the ability to almost like turn off that human empathy or to maybe not let it cloud your judgment, you see success. 
what what would be your sort of like comeback to that if you had to have one? There are some really smart leaders that that are not leading with their soft skills necessarily. And they generally surround themselves with people who will be buffers. Um, I don't think that there is one kind of leader that that has to be, you know, mm. the perfect one. I I think that it's harder to be that kind of leader because things are so transparent now. So, you know, there's um, websites where you can see, is this a nice place to work? Like people have more choices. And yep. frankly, there's a lot of people who don't necessarily, um, you know, have to, to deal with whatever the, the immediate surrounding is. There's a lot of leaders who are really not nice to work with, but they're okay at the, at the top sort of, you know, a thousand, 10,000 feet <laughs> away um, building a vision. And there's a lot of buffer in between those. I mean, uh, Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive, you know, he, he was a good leader for a certain time. And I see this a lot with leaders who um, are, they have a sense of urgency um, they are, they get stuff done. They're great in turnaround situations, for instance, but mm. maybe they're not so great when things have shifted and you have to capture talent and, you know, you have to build a culture that's inspiring. It depends. It really depends on sort of what stage your company's in and, uh, and what, what people need from you. And if you can adapt, then, fantastic and if you can't then that's why ceos are now have like an average lifespan of maybe four years at a company they're good yeah. for a certain thing and then they move on it's interesting isn't it because it comes it's, it, it, this isn't the first time where i've sort of had a, a, a picture form in my brain when people are talking about the future of work and going it's a, it's a jigsaw it's a person can come in and like you've just said they can fit that uh, the, the gap that is in there, but they might not fit it perfectly and therefore they bounce out or they sort of throw out the the other pieces and they go, oh, we can fit, fit around this way as well. And that then works because you can see what the picture is. It's not a perfect metaphor, um, but it does make me sort of think that the, the future of work is more um, focusing on the individuals, but they've got to have that sort of clear vision and be able to bring people with them. And more and more, I keep seeing polarising uh, senior leadership from places and that I think is going to lead to a few issues down the road with staff retention uh, with uh, discretionary effort and things like that do you think um, you know the leadership personality has the has the biggest issue when it comes to um, a firm's success or do you think it's their interpersonal skills in, in a sense I think that things are changing a lot so there are people who have the perfect personality, you know, or, or politics. No, no one person is perfect. Um, but if they're smart, then they know what they're good at and they play to that. And, and if they're at the right time, right place, right time, like a jigsaw, maybe that's working well, but things have changed so much from a sort of, uh, employer's market to the employee's market. And I think that that is a shift that's going to get to be, um, to sort of snowball because I, I was working, uh, I'll tell you a little story about this metaverse company, <laughs> which oh. floored me in terms of leadership because I um, came in with another person. I am not uh, a command and control type, but we, I was excited about it and we um, 
we're talking about the marketing and, you know, I, I am very methodical and I have a corporate background. So I was like, we're going to decide who's going to do what. And then we're going to all coalesce. It's going to be great. And like team. Yay. And uh, I got this call after uh, from the founder and he was like, Diana, I think you got to like back off a little bit because um, rumor has it that you were treating somebody like an employee. <laughs> and I was Ooh. like, and then there was this pause and I was like waiting for like, like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And, uh, and he was like, we don't like, we are collectively here in this DAO, you know, to, to create the vision. And um, we've all bought into this idea. We've bought into this, you know, protocol on voting. And, and he's like, nobody here wants to be an employee. Like it was a dirty word. And if you think about what that means for leadership, like if you're a leader and you need to, um, to, to sort of have a collective, it's like kind of bringing people together, you know, to be in a commune almost as opposed to, uh, okay, we all know what we need to, maybe that's an extreme example too, but I do increasingly, you can see people thinking, I'm not just an employee, give me some more dignity. I think so. Some people still haven't really been able to tell me, and maybe you can, the difference between a DAO and a holacracy. Well, Is it just like I, more legal? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think DAOs are evolving. So I would say that at the yes. moment, you know, the, the idea of a DAO is very much um, based on the blockchain. And so the thing that I think of in DAO versus holacracy is, that people are coming together. Sometimes it's the, the technology behind it, um, but people are coming together around a common purpose um, and oftentimes are relying on agreeing on what the protocols will be and having more trust in those rules that are written into protocols. Um, and that that would be, to me, one of the bigger differences between holacracy and a DAO that mm. and and holacracy to me also is sort of a management philosophy that that corporations and businesses more are thinking about using whereas DAOs are you know sometimes they come together like the constitution DAO where it, it's not meant to be a forever company uh it's just hey you want to buy the constitution let's form a DAO we'll do this thing we'll make it happen and then we'll move on and if we did it well we all of a sudden have the equivalent of equity, uh, which can potentially grow. And then we move on to the next project. And I do think that that is a huge trend in the future of work. Um, and that that is requiring different leadership, that that is requiring a different approach of um, inspiring people to come together. That it's almost like a, you know, the way that, political parties do or sports teams or the way mm. that Bollywood or Hollywood comes together around a movie. Yeah, it's interesting. I really think that, um, and DAO, just in case anyone's not um, aware, decentralized autonomous organizations, they are entities with no central leadership and decisions get made from the bottom up and that's sort the of thing. And as uh, Diana rightly said, all to do with the blockchain, they're enforced on the blockchain and that sort of thing. Um, they they have a really bad rep at the moment. You know, we've, we've seen some really interesting examples. Why do you think that more companies aren't looking into DAOs at the moment? Well, because I just did an article about it that's 
it's not out yet for um, global focus, but it, it's Ooh. because the, the what you just described. There's no central leadership. There's there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors, in my opinion, uh, around in it. Web3? Where... Smoke and mirrors <laughs> in Web3? I don't, be- I don't believe it. Shocking, really. <laughs> um, but going through the process of sort of trying to help different companies, and uh, some of them have legal entities. So one of the ones that I talked to said, we have a legal entity. We have, you know, employee contracts. We do pensions um, for our employees, et cetera. Uh, And I said, well, isn't that like exactly the opposite of a DAO where it's supposed to be, you know, we all come together and no centralized leadership and um, the will of the people, et cetera. And he said, yeah, well, so we kind of do that. Um, But we have centralized decision making and, you know, more traditional company. So I said, so what's the point, right? What's the point of having a DAO? And he said, we're creating this ecosystem and the people have bought in to, um, you know, let's say it's a mouthwash DAO. So people are excited about it. They share your values. They really like what you're doing. And what he said is that he's got his core team, which is more traditional, but he is perpetually hiring from the people in his ecosystem, in this DAO, in this community, which you could argue doesn't need to be part of the blockchain, but people mm-hmm. have a more of an investment because they own a piece of it. I, yeah, I just, I'm, I've got to look into it more. <laughs> I just go, you own a piece of nothing, which could be something, but like, that's also, that could be a business. It's like, we've invented something that I'm not sure we hundred percent needed. Like there were, I, think, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm still looking into it. I'm got to write it for the book, for the update. I'm, I'm very much like in the thick of it. I'm still, I keep reading things and like going, but that sounds like this. And then like trying to look for things to say, like why it isn't like that isn't often easy either. So it's kind of, I don't know. It's interesting for sure. Anyway, but let's get back to earth and let's talk about the yes. book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really like the personal user manual in there and that uh, manual. And that talks a bit about what we were talking about before with different personality types and that Rick Pastor um, wrote a, a, a great book. He was the first um, interview this season on uh, mouthwash. He has that on his site. It's a list of how he communicates, works, hours, and that sort of thing. I really like the idea of this. And you're the second person that has sort of brought it up uh, to me, if that makes sense. Can you talk through yeah. what people should do and possibly more importantly, how? You know, so, not everybody has a website, for example. Some might see it as standoffish. What, what's the sort of best way to make that succeed? Um, I have made uh, hundreds now of people in my business school class do this. So I have a lot of data uh, the personal user manual is kind of like the same way that you would open your um, electronics and, and it would tell you, how can I get along with you? How can I develop a good relationship? And I think this is super important because it is a world where increasingly fast trust is very important for people who are coming into projects. You got to jump in, you have to have a conversation, you have to find um, you know, ways to work together. Uh, and Stephen Covey um, Jr., the, the younger Stephen M. R. Covey, did Speed of Trust, and he has some great work on trust. And, and um, the personal user manual is fantastic for fast trust. It basically says, look, um, we want to work together. Here's how I work. It's um, things like 
your you being a VR user in the morning. Hey, you want to play paintball in the morning? I'm always here at this time. Let's have fun. If you call me after 10 p.m., I'm liable to bite your head off. Or, you know, back when we were like when we were working together for my team, I would say, you know, if I if I'm heads down and I'm just, you know, plowing through something, or if I get really quiet, I'm not angry at you. I'm thinking <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, you know, other other things that we've used are the technology, the way we communicate, which has been fascinating because um, a lot of the folks are based in China. And so, you know, it's like, mm. what what do you use? Is it WhatsApp? Is it WeChat? Is it, you know, Kakao Talk? Do you prefer emails? Are we casual? Are we formal? Um, are there any no-goes? Do you want to talk about your family? Do you not? All these things that we never talk about frankly, um, mm. go into the personal user manual. And the only, so first of all, it's, I always tell um, people, it's all the things you wish your boss told you about them before you found out the hard way. <laughs> um, but I think it's great for teams. So I think to level the playing field to say, hey, here's mine. Here's, here's how I operate. Let's all do it. And in fact, one of my clients put it on the intranet so that any new person came in and was like, okay, here's what I'm getting into. And let me tell you about the way I operate. Um, and then, you know, over time, it, it sort of grew throughout the company and they all did one. Yeah, it's a bit it's sort of assuming the disc um, style of working, isn't it? Where, you know, you're, you, everyone's got their own style of communication. If you know other people's, then you can adapt yours so that you're, you're helping that person understand you, you're understanding them better. It's just a nicer way of sort of working. And I can see a lot of that sort of coming out from, uh, from a lot of people's um, you know, list of how to communicate, you know, and that sort of thing, definitely. But I don't think I can put mine publicly out there because mine is long, number one, and also it's just <laughs> literally email me at any time and I will get to it when I can, that sort of thing. So yeah, but, um, but that's, that's fun. I'm too crotchety. I need to uh, I need to liven up a bit more and be okay with WhatsApp at 10 o'clock at night. I'm just kidding. If anyone WhatsApps me, except for my parents, it doesn't get through. So yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, you... Let's talk big picture for a bit. The book um, has a bit in there about a hundred year life. It's a 50-50 chance if your baby is born in the West. Um, either way, we're going to be living and working a lot longer. Um, the book is kind of like a call to arms, really, to change paths when you feel the need to. That's what I read. C correct me mm. if I'm wrong. Um, talk me through some of the signs that a leader or a person has to make a course correction. Well, when I did a TEDx talk, I was told... It's so lovely, Diana. You're just having your midlife crisis on stage. That's what one of my friends told me. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, I guess. Um, and I had so many young people come up and say, you know, I I bought into this, go to good school, get good grades, and, and I see it with my kids too. And so, you know, I thought that it was a call to arms to people to understand that that we could work for a long time, that we could continue contributing as modern elders. And I had a lot of people that I was, um, that were coming to my, my board training programs, um, that were saying, Hey, I'm 55 and it's, um, retirement age at my company. What am I going to do for the next 20 years? Uh, and it was really a call to arms to say to them, Hey, we can reinvent. You don't have to be the CEO and then retired. You could be the CEO and then go be a professor or whatever it is. Um, and it was a call to arms to companies to say, look, this is, you know, this is different now. 
you don't have to have somebody that's going to be with you forever. And it hasn't been like that for a long time. So get with the program and figure out how to be more flexible and even more porous. Um, and so for people who are in their 50s, it's absolutely a complete game changer. They're, um, at least before the pandemic, people over 50 were the fastest growing part of the workforce, which not that many people think. Mm. Um, so that, that was a huge um, moment where companies were realizing, oh, it's not the millennials, it's the perennials. How are we going to keep them? Uh, but I see it happening more and more with younger people who they start down the path and then they go, oh, God, I'm going to be working for like 60 years. I don't have to just do this path. You know, I can have a little bit of that. Um, what is that movie where where she, Gwyneth Paltrow has multiple lives? I can't remember. Sliding Doors Sliding or something. Doors, yeah. yeah, where you're like, oh, you know, I, I can kind of have a couple of different lives during my working life. And so um, that is the call to arms. Like really as a woman, as a parent, I thought, you know, I could take some time off and spend time with my kids and then go back. And I like, it was 60 years. Who's going to notice my absence for a year. Um, <laughs> and nobody did. So yeah, I, I think that those kind of equations, um, those are the kind of things that have been happening in the workforce where people, and you see it in, with the people resigning during the pandemic, you know, they're like, maybe yeah. I'll sit with, uh, maybe I'll sit this one out. Is it really going to matter if I'm, I'm working 60 years? To, to that end as well. I think I really like the bit in the book about the minimum viable lifestyle MVL. Can you explain mm. what that is and why it's so powerful? The minimum viable lifestyle was uh, the one little nugget in the book that people were like, oh, that's its own movement. I'm going to go for that. Yeah, um, I think it could be for sure. It really was the real the realization that um, based in part on thinking, what, what can I teach my kids? That um, having a real sense of what is non-negotiable um, sort of financially is important. So you know, what is the least amount that you need in order for you to live a happy life? Not just, not the sort of bucket list, not what do I want? Just like, what do I really just need, which is a roof over your head. And, you know, if you're lucky to have that, then that's great. And um, for some people, it's education for their kids. For some people, it's like, I need enough money to, you know, um, see my parents in another part of the region or whatever it is. So really, really thinking about that and, uh, and then adding from there. So what is it that I really want? I, I see a lot of people um, in uh, my part of the world where, you know, they say, oh, I can't, I can't go to art school. I can't take a year off. Uh, because my kids are in private school. And I'm like, well, you know, just go back to the very basic, the minimum viable product of your life. And then start looking at the design features. Like, is art school better or isn't private school better? Like for you, and what does it teach your kids that you go to art school? Maybe that's a better lesson than, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Um, and really curating more closely what it is that is important and understanding the trade-offs more starkly. 
Mm. It's so important. I really did love that bit of the book. It was uh, it was one that again I, I scribbled down. I was like, must ask a question about this. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the future leaders for one second, and then we'll go on to we'll, we'll close out um, with what else but the metaverse. Um, we've got we've got a lot of Gen Alphas coming into the fold. They've got very different ideas about leadership and work in general. Um, how do you think people uh, should be fostering the leaders of the future? I did a project last year with young Southeast Asian leaders. And we uh, gave them a little bit of information and education from Institute for the Future in Silicon Valley. We had some people talk about teams, et cetera, just, just enough scaffolding. And then we gave them five hard problems and we put them on Miro and we said, you figure out the, the what, the so what, and the now what. And we gave them things like privacy, trust, like big kind of juicy, juicy things. There were people from, you know, super advanced um, into futures research from Singapore. There was um, somebody from Lao who was um, an activist getting farmers together. Um, there, there were all kinds of emerging leaders and, you know, they, the, the people in some of the um, more developing countries didn't even have enough bandwidth to get on Miro. And I saw these guys come together to say, like, what is it that is important about privacy for us? Um, and they were WhatsApping. They were, like, taking pictures of the screen, WhatsApping, saying, what do you think? Um, send me something back and I'll put it on the Miro so that we can have a collaborative um, solution. And I, I just, it may gave me hope for the future. So I think, mm. how do you do it? Um, you, you give people just enough information. And then you say, look, we all know that these are the big juicy problems. What is it that you think is the most important? And why? And what are we going to do about it? And the kind of things that they came up with for the privacy, I think it was similar to GDPR, Asia Pacific, wide. They had like all the different ministries that they'd need to talk to and why it was important for their own generation. It, it was just astounding. And so I think providing the, you know, space and tool and inspiration to do that is fantastic. I have great hope. I, I Yeah, I, I'm using that H word with them as well. I'm seeing a lot of interesting stuff from the data. Obviously, things change, isn't it, when you get the realities of having a mortgage and things like that. But I hope that that will, <laughs> you know, that those things will be less important to some people. Who knows? Um, right. Before we just get on to that last question, um, I want to ask you one last quick fire thing. Let's imagine we're a CEO and we're thinking about the future of our business. Um, what questions are you writing down today uh, to answer tomorrow? What questions am I writing down today to answer tomorrow? Um, why will people wake up in the morning and be excited to come to work? Oh, good one. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's what, the what I would be thinking. <laughs> okay. I like, no, I like that. I like that. Um, okay, right, the close. Um, I am uh, excited. I'm going to be um, interviewing a company called Hundo Careers later in the season. They're basically helping young people build careers and new business models for the metaverse. Um, mm. I want to know what is, I think I've got an idea already, but what's your take on the metaverse and future world of work? Are we going to be, uh, you know, going back to virtual offices or do you think buying stock in Zoom is still a good idea? 
Mm, I think that the um, the metaverse is pretty far away because yeah. I've spent quite a bit of time there, um, and you know, even the 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 best ones have been tours where um, people have said like really, really well-resourced companies have said, this is going to be 2025. And you go there and you're like, it's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. You can do Macarena and the metaverse together. And maybe, Paul, we would have a stronger, stronger bond after that. I don't know. I know um, I would. <laughs> I, I think it's worth a try, right? Or maybe paintball, maybe not the Macarena. So I I'm just not sure think- shooting employees at any scenario is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think we get, I think we have a business idea there. Um, so 10%. yeah, I, I think that there are, there are interesting things that are happening in the metaverse in particular with education and training um, and even diversity and inclusion that I think are great. Like the enterprise level um, education. I think I'm very positive about um, collaboration. I mean, there's just so many ways we're not even on a video call. So, mm. you know, I, we both like the metaverse, but you you can have wonderful conversations without having to be in 2D, let alone 3D. I'm interested in the multiverse and metaverse and that sort of thing. My only issue is I don't think we're thinking big enough from the off. Everyone who shows me a video when it's to do with the office, they go, look at these beautiful four walls. They look just like the office that we all tried to escape three years ago. And I'm like, why would you build that? Like, that's a waste of everyone's time. Like, yeah, oh, you, yeah. Could, you know, what does a door mean in a metaverse? It doesn't, it's not, doesn't, shouldn't look like a door, should it? Surely we can be, th this is the chance to think big and like change things. And if you really want people to collaborate, why have you made a whiteboard? Surely it's got to be like the sky, like the sky's the limit or something, you know, it's just, I'm just not seeing it's a PR job they've got to do on it. They always do this without anything like HoloLens or anything. They just put out something that they think we want to see. And you go, but that looks like what we know already. Why aren't, why would I, you know, it's just like not very inspiring. You know, some people get excited by it, but for me, it's like, you're not asking the right people to build these things for you. You want like the best architects. You want the best educators. You want to go, if you, if resources were like not anything that you had to think about, what would it look like, you know, and be like, I just think you'd get better answers or better outcomes. You know, that's the, that's the thing. But anyway, that's my rant. Absolutely. No, absolutely. There's so many people going, Hey, I can do a digital sneaker. And I'm like, well, can you make me fly? <laughs> can, yeah. you make, can, can my sneaker NFT make me fly? So I think that there is sky's the limit, but it's really hard to create immersive environments. You know, yeah. it's makes you realize how lucky you are that we can just go to the office and, sit and have a cup of coffee and <laughs> it yeah. seems relatively easy i'm fine having coffee in the in the metaverse as well but again it's like i do i have to be suspended in air in order to get the sensations to understand what we're sort of like doing i don't know i think there's just you know equally i could go for a very cool you know fly and have that coffee and that sort of thing but you know there's realities isn't there of like sensations and that sort of stuff but it's definitely one one to ponder but i do i genuinely believe they're getting the wrong people to design these things but yeah right <laughs> Um, okay, we end as ever with a Desert Island tweet, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two uh, that has changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. If you turn your attention to the nest, if you're uh, listening live, you will see a tweet by Strategies for Influence and you can follow them at, at influence underscore four. Very imaginative or weird way of doing that. I'm sure they could have thought of other things, but there you go. Um, the tweet reads, the objective is to control your time, a non-renewable resource. 
and apply it to where you have the highest leverage or enjoyment. And that's from the mighty Tim Ferriss. He is a sort of work-life hacker, if that makes sense. He, you know, <laughs> hack biohacks his body and that sort of stuff. If you're unfamiliar with him, he wrote the uh, Four Hour Work Week as well, which is obviously a good god bestseller. It doesn't even cover it. I think stratospheric seller. Um, so yeah, again, why did you um, pick this one? I think that it, it, everything really boils down to um, to time, and ultimately, um, that's our biggest problem and our biggest opportunity. So when you're at work, and I think a lot of people now are realizing, you know, I can, I can do a lot in my life without necessarily trading all my hours for mm. a paycheck or for a job description, or, you know, I can create value and it doesn't have to always be tied to time. So he does a great, uh, I, one of the things that I remind myself, there's a, um, blog called Wait But Why by Tim Urban and he does oh, your life great. in weeks. Have you seen that? <laughs> I love when the, I'm uh, getting the pictures, yeah. Yeah, the stick figures and he has this, you know, he has this sort of visual of like here's your life and here's if you spend, you know, 12 weeks working on a project and you put it all together, um, you know, you you really start to realize your life is passing before your eyes. So where are you going to spend it? It's your most precious resource. Mm. which which is i think where minimum viable lifestyle comes in yeah no i i agree it's it th this whole future of work season has been like we have we have to work right we have to make money and that sort of thing we don't have to do it in the way that we have done it because things are changing so quickly and we have different technologies mm. now and also a willingness to use those technologies when you think about the pandemic we've had all of those technologies beforehand we just never wanted to use them we never had to use them and now we have you can say most people probably haven't thought about how they should use them and so that for me is the interesting yeah. bit of where we go sort of like next but yeah yeah okay, look that is a wrap on season four. I've kept you long enough, so thank you for your time. Um, my thanks to Diana Wu David for a lot of food for thought about the um, future of work, really. I, I don't think it's necessarily clear where leadership is going. I hope it's going to a better place. I hope the technologies make it better, but um, yeah, we shall see. Um, so follow Diana on Twitter. Um, you can also get the book Future Proof from any good bookshop. Um, oh, and Diana has um, an amazing uh, website as well where she has lots of resources. DianaWuDavid.com and then it's on there as well, but I think it's forward slash, what is it? Future-proof strategies? I should have written that down. Sorry. But if you go to the um, website, no. you'll be able to see. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's on the, I think it's at the bottom of it. Yeah. DianaWooDavid.com. Brilliant. Um, right. Uh, where are we? Any final words of advice before I let you go, Diana? <laughs> uh, no. You know, we always sign off our future-proof community with don't, uh, don't live the life you've been given. Work hard for the one you want. So that's my call to arms. Oh, that is nice. That is a good that is a good one. I like that as well. Um, right. Up next on Mouthwash is Julia Hobsbawm. She is author of The Nowhere Office. She's a super connector and she has written for everyone and their mother. She is insanely uh, well versed in the future of work. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how much I've got to be on my toes for that one. So do join in. I heard you. I'm sure it's going to be feisty. Um, if you want, uh, never miss a minute of Mouthwash. If you go to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you never miss a minute. Um, Mouthwash is produced by Susan, the big team at Big Tent Media. Um, use them for all your audio needs. Um, as always, everything Mouthwash, even the text alerts, can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. And I am a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I am Paul Armstrong. This is Mouthwash. Listen in again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident.
Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.